talked about the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, and I've still got my chunk of bread on my, uh, on my uh, bookshelf in the office, getting all nice and dry and crusty. We talked about how, how God wants to use our life, but to use our life, he has to break it, and, and that, that we have to die to what we think life is so that we can receive his true gift of eternal life. And, and that's the picture that's painting everything from this point forward, because that's what Jesus is going to do with his life. He's going to give his life. His life is going to be broken for the salvation of all mankind. And, and once we get past this story, in the next story, we're going to hear how Jesus resolutely sets out for Jerusalem and turns his face towards the cross, and, and he starts looking and moving in, in an intentional, purpose-driven kind of fashion towards what would be his death and his devastation as a human being. And so, so everything from this point forward is looking forward and moving towards the death of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, there's, there's this subplot that's going on that if you're going to be a disciple, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to follow him in the same way. We have to go with Jesus as he walks towards the cross. We also carry our cross and walk towards the same destination where we die and we, so that we might actually be raised to a new life in Jesus Christ. And so as you look at the transfiguration and what James and John and Peter are going to experience here on the mountain, that has to be framed in the context of Jesus starting to move towards his crucifixion. Verse 28, I don't have all the verses on the screen, so just listen in for the ones that you don't see. Um, Thinking about, I don't know, and I just told you to use your phone, so I'm kind of contradicting, contradicting myself, but uh, really challenging everyone to bring an actual physical Bible, a printed Bible, and take notes in it, and doing some kind of thing there, and, and maybe even putting a basket out in the back, and you leave your phone in the basket uh, as you walk in, and, and uh, just really engage with real people in real life, but uh, we might not be there yet, I'll have to kind of work towards that, but... Um, if you've got your Bible, you can look Luke chapter 9, verse 28. About eight days after, so eight days after Jesus fed the 5,000, um, they, they go up to a mountain, and there's some discussion. There's uh, not quite certainty about which mountain Jesus went up on, but a couple of the mountains that were nearby, you know, one of them's 9,000 feet in elevation. So, you know, at, at least he would have to go up three or 4,000. He'd have to climb up three or 4,000 feet in elevation with the disciples. So maybe it took him this long to get up there. About eight days after uh, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus said this. He took Peter, John, and James with him and went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was saying. But while he was speaking, while Peter was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. So Peter got interrupted by God. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. This is the second time we've heard God's voice in the story of Jesus, and this is almost the same content. This is my son whom I love or whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and didn't tell anyone at that time what they had seen. In, this, in Matthew and Mark's account, Jesus actually tells them not to tell anyone about this. And I was just going to finish there, but when I was looking at it in the, in the Greek, this is all one paragraph, so there must be some correlation here if it's all one paragraph, some, some overlapping of ideas, so decided to to carry out the whole paragraph today. The next day, 
after this, after they saw this, they came down from, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion, but Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. This is the epic moment that, that the, the whole story of Jesus has kind of led up to this point, and it's a transition from, from his life up till now and to where he's moving towards his ultimate glory. And so it's a pretty big moment in the story of Jesus. And this word transfigured, which actually Luke doesn't, doesn't use the word transfigured, it's Matthew and Mark use it, but it's the same word for metamorphosis, transformation. He was literally transformed in front of them. Same word that we use in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where we're supposed to be renewed by the transforming or be transformed by the renewing of our mind. It's the same, the same word there that's used, and it's some of the only places it's used in the New Testament is, is in this story and in Romans. But Peter, James, and John, so one question I think we can ask ourselves is, are we close enough to Jesus that he would invite us to go up onto the mountain to pray? Would we be one of the three that Jesus would invite? Or are we close in with Jesus? And would he invite us to go up on the mountain to watch this and observe this? But Peter, John, and James, they go and, and they experience this. They get a look, just a little glimpse of what Jesus will be like when he returns in his glory because that's a huge part of our story is that there was a lot of confusion about what Jesus was doing because they expected him to come in his glory and establish his kingdom. But, but he came in a humble way, and so there wasn't really an understanding that there was going to be two events. And so... Jesus is talking about his second coming. He makes mention of that just before this story when he will return. And the disciples get just a little glimpse of it, a little glimpse of what it looks like. And, and you have to imagine this, that his appearance changed. His face changed. His face was illuminated. It was glowing with light. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. I've seen some flashy clothes in my day, but I've never seen anything as bright as a flash of lightning. Wouldn't that be amazing to put yourself there on the mountain and just kind of witness Jesus as you're standing there and his face is illuminated and his clothes are glowing, bright white, blinding light. What's the point of all this? Well, I, I think there's some, some things that we can draw out and learn, and we'll, we'll bring this to a conclusion here in just a minute with some application. But I want to I point out a few things. First, Moses and Elijah were there. What, what is the significance of Moses and Elijah being there? And as From my study, it seems to be that the reason that Moses and Elijah were there is that, that Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. And Jesus came and, and he said that he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And so, so it looks to me that this would be you know, an, a, a statement of affirmation from the Father saying that he is the one to listen to, not the law and the prophets. Listen to my son, Jesus. And there's a lot of other ideas about what it may mean, but I think this is the one most common sense idea. But this word departure, verse 31, Moses and Elijah spoke with Jesus about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. 
This word departure is literally exodus. That's the word departure, it's exodus. So Moses and Elijah are speaking with Jesus about his exodus. And, and one of the reasons I started looking, at, looking into that, because grammatically it doesn't make any sense if you look at it just as departure. They spoke about his departure, which he was about, about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So the sentence kind of doesn't really make sense unless you understand that departure is actually exodus. So, so they're talking about, about the exodus that Jesus is about to bring. And so um, what we need to understand and maybe go back and, and look at is that the exodus was actually a foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to do. So, so we tend to look at the exodus as this event where, where Jesus or Moses comes in and he saves all the people from Egypt and the slavery and all of that, and they go out and they, they uh, disobey God in the wilderness and they wander in the wilderness. And so it seems like you know, that's the point. But the, even the point of the story, even though that's what happened, is a foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to do because God used Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery to Egypt. God is going to use Jesus to lead all of humanity out of slavery to sin. So the exodus, as huge of an event, when you talk about a million, potentially a million people coming out of Egypt and following Moses out of Egypt, it's a huge, epic event. And as big as of an event as that is, it's just a foreshadowing. It's just a little picture of what is going to actually happen with Jesus. So, so Moses and Elijah are there on the mountain talking with Jesus about the real exodus that's about to take place. And it's interesting. Peter, John, and James are there. And what is the first thing that we read about Peter, John, and James when it comes to them seeing Moses and Elijah? Verse 32, Peter and his companions were very sleepy. It literally is weighed down with sleep. They were burdened with sleep, which you could probably understand if you just climbed a mountain, you'd probably be tired. But they kind of have a habit of, of falling asleep, right? I mean, these are guys that go off with Jesus in the Garden of Eden or the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying the night that he's going to be betrayed, and they keep falling asleep there. There are some times in life when I think you want to be awake. For example, on Sunday mornings during the sermon, that's a great time to be awake. But if you're going to sleep through anything, I think you would not ever want to sleep through the transfiguration, right? You wouldn't want to sleep through seeing Moses and Elijah and Jesus and all of the stuff that's about to take place. But they were weighed down with sleep. But they saw Jesus glowing and they kind of snapped them out of it. And then this verse 33. Let's look at verse 33. As the men were leaving, or about to leave, some translations say, we're about to leave Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So Moses and Elijah are about to leave. Peter figures out that they're about to leave, and he wants them to stick around for a little while. So he says, let's put up three tents. Literally, the word is tabernacles. Um, and this was actually, you know, from at least from my study, taking place during the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's really interesting, the correlation to all that. And Peter says, let's, let's set up three tabernacles. A tabernacle, at least this word, uh, kind of represents, you know, branches that would have been put together uh, to make a little bit of a shelter for them. And so Peter wants to make three, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And, and, and let's just, let's just kind of hang out at this spot. Let's stay here for a while. Let's set up camp and let's, let's just kind of enjoy this, this awesome, miraculous experience, right? I mean, wouldn't you want to hang out there for a little while? Wouldn't you want to stay in the same spot for a little while? If you're up on the mountain with Jesus and he's glowing in this bright white and then Moses and Elijah are there talking to Jesus, so literal, you know, event that you get a peek behind the curtain of, of, of true eternity, You'd want to hang out there for a little while. I would. I'd want to talk to Moses a little bit. Kind of had to temper Moses. I'd want to talk to Elijah. 
Elijah, you're, you, know, you showed us this great example of faith, but then you showed us what it looks like to not have faith. One instance, you're this bold prophet bringing down fire from heaven, and the next minute you're hiding from a cave. Elijah, let's talk about that. I want to talk to Jesus. I would want to be in the cloud and hear God's booming voice. I would have wanted to set up some tents and stay there for a while. But that's not the point. And this, and Luke's telling of the story, we get Luke saying that Peter didn't understand what he was asking. We get it in, in the other accounts that Jesus says, you don't understand what you're saying. You don't, you don't know what you're asking for. The point of this wasn't to kind of come and camp out for a while and hang out in the presence of awesome. That wasn't the point of what was going on. And I think we do the same thing, and I know I in my life do the same thing, where, where when I experience God's presence in an awesome way, when I experience God move in a miraculous way, when I get just a little bit of a peek of what God is up to in the supernatural realm, I have a tendency to want to set up camp and stay there for a while to see what God has done. I want to set up camp and Yet at the same time, God is wanting me to move. I, I want to set up camp, but God is ready for me to, to get on the move. I want to kind of stay in this spot. I want to stay in this place where it feels good, this, this transcendent moment where, where I'm experiencing God in, a, in a, a really amazing, worshipful way. I want to stay in that moment, but God doesn't want me to stay in that moment. He's using that moment to move me towards something. We have a tendency to want to set up camp when God is ready to move. You see, the point of this moment isn't, isn't to just enjoy this amazing, miraculous moment in the presence of God, literal presence of God, the cloud coming down on the mountain just like the cloud came down on the mountain with Moses when he received the law. The cloud coming down on the mountain that's not the point. The point is, yes, there's going to be a crown. Yes, there's going to be glory. Yes, there's going to be a day when, when Christ returns illuminated like this. But before that, there had to be a cross. Before there could be a crown, there had to be a cross. And before Peter could really get all of his thinking out, the voice the father interrupts Peter. Peter said, hey, 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 Jesus, this is a really good thing for us to be here. Let, let's set up some tents, you know, some tents and, and just kind of hang out. And just in the midst of Peter putting his foot in his mouth, the voice from the cloud says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. I wasn't quite deep enough. I'm not quite Morgan Freeman enough yet to... <clears throat> this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. That's it. <laughs> Why do we always assume God has this really deep voice? Maybe it's, maybe it's real high-pitched. This is my son. Yeah, everyone's like, that's sacrilegious. You can't say that God has a high-pitched voice. You don't know. But uh, this voice interrupted Peter. What is the point of this whole event? And what's the point specifically for Peter? Because, because as they're leaving, Jesus says, don't tell anyone about this. And, and they determined that they weren't going to do that. And they didn't. They actually kept that promise. They, they held up their end of the deal. So what is, the, what is the point of all of this when it comes to Peter, John, and James? Well, we actually see Peter bring this back up in his book, Second Peter, which we went through uh, several years ago when we were talking about good trees. And Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales 
when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. One significant thing that's happening here is that, is that a, a statement like this has to be verified by two or three witnesses for it to have legitimacy. There has to be someone to witness what's happening. And, and you know, as we're going to read in just a little bit, the people's minds weren't ready to really understand the fullness of what was taking place with Jesus, the Son of God, coming to walk on the planet. But Jesus needed to foreshadow in the minds of the select few that were closest to him what is actually taking place so they could get just a little bit of a grasp of the, of the gravity of what's going on. And so Peter, John, and James were those three witnesses that came up. And then after Jesus resurrected from the dead and after they started to be, participate in the building of the church, then they were able to testify as witnesses to what had taken place before even the crucifixion. So there's all kinds of significance to this event, not just for Jesus and his glory, but for the disciples. There are also some that talk about how this is a, a, a bit of a picture of our glorified bodies, and I'm not quite sure if you, can, if you can make that jump, but there are some who say that. We do definitely get new glorified bodies that are much different than these broken down bodies, and so that is something that we can look forward to. But why would this all be one paragraph? Why wouldn't you just kind of focus on the transfiguration? Most of our new translations actually break the transfiguration out, and then they break up the next two things into two completely different segments. But why would this all be one paragraph for Luke? Why would he treat this all as one thought? So let's go back and let's kind of get some more of the story. So after the transfiguration, the next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions. I begged your disciples to drive it out. They couldn't do it. And then Jesus drives the spirit out. And then in verse 42, we see this. Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. Jesus has cast out demons several times already leading up to this. We'll see more of Jesus doing miraculous works like this. But why include this story right now? And I think it has to do with just the illustration of what's about to take place. Because Jesus is in the work of revealing to the disciples what is about to happen. And so this whole process from what we were talking about last week to this week and to next week, it's all trying to help the disciples and prepare the disciples for what's about to take place where they're going to watch their master, their rabbi, their teacher suffer under the hands of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and be turned over to be crucified. And to me, and I can't really uh, dig this out anywhere. This looks like a picture of what's about to happen to Jesus. No, I'm not saying Jesus was demon-possessed. Don't take me that far. But here, this man has his only son. I beg you to look at my son. He's my only child. Jesus rebukes the impure spirit, heals the boy, and then gives him back to his father. And this, this event that Jesus is about to go on is actually the event that's going to get him back to the Father. So, so about six months from this event, Jesus would be dying on a cross and rising from the dead. And shortly after that, he would ascend back to the Father. And so, so here Jesus comes and he's going to fight the curse. He's going to deal with the curse. And as we read all the way back in the very beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 3, that, that the serpent would strike the heel of Jesus or the Messiah, the chosen one, but Jesus would crush his head. And so the curse may strike at this boy, but Jesus heals him and gives him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus said, 
he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. That, that phrase, listen carefully, literally means to cram this into your ears. So, so this isn't just pay attention. It isn't just like when Jesus says, listen, listen carefully. This actually is Jesus using a phrase that literally means cram this into your ears. Make sure that you hear and do not forget what I'm about to tell you. And what did he say? What was so important? The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. That was what he wanted them to hear. The Son of Man is going to be delivered. Cram this into your ears. You really need to hear this and understand it because you might not be, Peter, you might not quite get it yet. You might not quite understand what's happening yet. You need to take this and cram it into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. As we've talked many times before, the disciples were expecting Jesus to come and set up his kingdom and that we're actually going to see that's still what they're thinking. Even after this encounter, they're thinking that Jesus is going to come and set up his kingdom and they're fighting for the position of authority and who's going to get to sit at the right hand of Jesus. They want to be Jesus's right hand man and have the power that comes with being Jesus's right hand man. And Jesus is saying, look, it's not going to go like you think. It's not happening like you're expecting it to happen, I am going to have to be handed over to be crucified. Pay attention. Listen up. How many times has Jesus tried to tell us something, but we're not listening for what he's actually saying. We're trying to hear something else. How did they respond when he said that? He he said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, but they didn't understand what he meant. It was hidden from them so that they couldn't grasp it. So there's certainly a part of it where their minds aren't even able to receive it. But this last little phrase stood out to me. They were afraid to ask him about it. They were afraid to ask Jesus about what it meant. Why would they be afraid? Were they afraid of Jesus? Maybe. You know, if you had just been up on the mountain and you had seen what you had just seen and Jesus is glowing like lightning, you might be a little bit scared. You might not quite grasp what's going on. Maybe, maybe they were afraid of Jesus and didn't want to question it. But could it be possibly that maybe, maybe they also didn't want to know the truth? Maybe they were afraid of the truth. Maybe they were, they were so committed, so, so clinging to this idea that, that the Messiah is going to be this way. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to be my king. It's going to look like this. He's going to bring a revolution. He's going to overthrow all power, and we are going to sit with him as he rules in this new dominion, the new kingdom. And maybe... Maybe they didn't want to accept the reality that Jesus would have to go and die a cruel death on the cross because they were too committed to their perception of what was supposed to happen. Maybe they were afraid to ask Jesus because they wanted the power without the pain. See, Jesus had already told them just before this, just before they went up on the mountain, Jesus told them that if you're going to be my disciple, you have to pick up your cross daily. You have to disown yourself, deny yourself, die to yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow him. And where he was going was to the cross. So we have to follow him to the cross and lay down our lives for the good of others. That's what Jesus said it would look like to be his disciple. They knew that. They heard that. But if they actually asked him what it meant that he would have to be delivered into the hands of men, it might confirm their fears that instead of ruling at the right hand of Jesus in the new kingdom, they might have to suffer too. 
so they were afraid to ask. I have two questions I want to ask us as we start to wrap up. The first one is this. Are we wanting to set up camp when it's time to get moving? Do you find yourself wanting to set up camp when, when God is actually wanting you to move? So I love being in moments, I call them transcendent moments, where you're really experiencing the presence of God. And you know, maybe like we experience oftentimes here on Sunday mornings, or at least I do, I hope you do as well, but you experience this moment where, where you're in the presence of God, and that's what's so special about gathering together. That's why we can't replicate this you know, virtually, is that we, we come together, and as we come together, we are all carrying the presence of God because the Spirit of God dwells in each and every one of us. And, and as we gather together, it's like living stones coming together to build a temple for the presence of God. So yes, you have the presence of God in your day-to-day life, but it's so much more different here when we're gathered together in the presence of God. And, and when we come together and we experience these transcendent moments, we can kind of want to say, hey, we should do that more. We want, well, maybe we don't say this anymore, but we used to back in the day. You know, we should get together more often. We should worship more often. We should pray more often. We, we should be in God's presence more often. But in none of these accounts, from Moses to Elijah to Jesus, did God tell anyone to stay on the mountain. Nowhere did, did, did God say to Moses, stay up here. He had to stay up here for a certain amount of time, but, but once the time had come to an end, he had to go back down. Are we wanting to set up camp when it's time to get moving? We want to climb the mountain and have the mountaintop experience, and then we want to build the house up on the mountain. I don't think the point of mountaintop experiences is to, to have and stay on the mountaintop. I don't think the experience is just so that we can crave more mountaintop experiences. I think they're important. I think they're great. We need to be in God's presence all the time. We need to individually be, be spending time praying, going into our prayer closet and seeking God's face and connecting with him and te- talking to him and listening to him and, and letting him draw out things and build a relationship with us. Yes, we absolutely must do that on an ongoing basis. But the point of mountaintop experiences isn't so that we can just crave more mountaintop experiences. The the mountaintop experiences are great, but life happens in the valley. We have to come down off of the mountain to live on mission. See, the point of mountaintop experiences is to empower us for life on mission in the valley. The point of experiencing this for the disciples was so that they would have the perspective of of God's glory and God's kingdom and what was really happening, and that would empower, that that would help kick them down the road a little bit further when it came to their mission of building the church. How many times did the disciples experience this on a mountain? Once. They experienced God's presence in, in miraculous ways throughout the whole rest of their life. But, but maybe the point isn't to just seek mountaintop experiences. Maybe we need to stop setting up camp on the mountaintop when God is ready to move in the valley. So are we wanting to set up camp when God is ready for us to get moving? I understand it can be hard. I, I maybe more than, than many can understand the, the challenge of stepping out in faith. So much of what we do as a church depends on faith. So much of, of what we do depends on, on God providing for us, and it takes faith for God to provide so many different ways, and, and it can be a real challenge. I'm not, I'm not saying this to brag. I'm just saying that I know what it means to take a step out in faith, and I'm going to do one this morning to, to put my, my money where my mouth is. But it's hard to, to take that step out in faith and, and, and actually step out into where you're going to have to depend on God to walk with God. Can be hard to you know to to want to take down that tent and, and start going on the journey God has called us on. We get comfortable. We 
We like it. It's safe. It's predictable. It's amazing. But God wants us to move. God wants us to live our lives on mission. He wants us to actually be about his purposes in our day-to-day lives. He, he wants to give us experiences with him in his presence so that we connect with him and, and worship him and relate to him and know him and are empowered to do those things. But the point of those is not to empower us for more transcendent moments. The point of those is to empower us to go out and live missional lives where we care about the people who are lost and dying and suffering under the weight and effects of the curse. It's time to get moving. It's time to take down camp and get on the trail. Question number two, are we afraid of the truth? Are we afraid of the truth? Are we afraid of what knowing the truth might cost us? We like to use these statements, these phrases, what you don't know can't hurt you. Ignorance is bliss, right? That's what the guy wanted in, in that one movie, the old movie with all the computer code in it. What was that called? Matrix. Ignorance is bliss. Put me back so I don't know any of this stuff. I think there's a bit of that to what we wrestle with that we, we struggle with this idea that if we really understand what Jesus is asking of us, it's going to cost us too much. I mean, you heard the, you heard the call a couple weeks ago, right? I mean, if anyone's going to come after me, it must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We've talked about that for years here at the church. We're afraid of, of really understanding what that means because the cost might be so high. What is it going to cost to me? if I take up my cross and follow Jesus. And so instead of actually weighing it and trusting that God has the ability to provide for us in that, we, we kind of we step back and shrink back and just say, ah, oh, I'd rather not know. <laughs> I, know you, I know you from a safe distance. I don't need to know you any closer. And so don't give God the opportunity to ruin my life. Are we afraid of the truth? What would it look like if the truth of this passage took root in our lives? What would it look like for each and every one of us if, if the truth of this just kind of really took root deep in us and just became who we are? We actually became this, that, that instead of wanting to camp out when God wants us to move, we just became people who followed God wherever he led us. We just, we just trusted that he's going to lead us where he wants us to go, that we move when he says to move. What if, what if our lives started to look like listening to Jesus no matter how difficult the truth that, that we understood that his purposes and his intentions for us and sharing the truth with us is because he loves us. And when he reveals the truth to us, it's because he wants to set us free from some of the bondage that we're believing in our old mindset and our old thinking that is still enslaved to sin. And he wants to actually set us free from that and bring us into the love that he really has for us. What would it look like if we just believed that no matter how difficult the truth, we just embraced it because we assumed that God has our best interests at heart? What would it look like if our church lived this way? That if the truth of this just took root in who we are as a church, that that our church just moved when God wanted us to move, that that we didn't, "Ah, I don't know if if that's really God, I don't know if God would really ask, would, would God really ask us to do that? Is that really what God wants for us? You know, maybe we just need to come together and pray and spend a little more time in worship and, and just really seek God's face and see if that's what he wants. Yeah, yeah, we need to do that. At some point, we got to get up and we got to go, right? Yeah, we need to go where God wants us to go, but at some point, we got to move. What would it look like? We as a church just listened to Jesus. We just, we just sought his truth no matter how difficult the truth. And we just said, I believe that you're giving this truth for me because you love me, because you have so much for me. And, and as, as a body, as we come together, we are going to walk in that truth no matter what, no matter how difficult, no matter how much it costs.
I don't share this with a lot, a lot of people, but I'm going to share it today. Maybe some of you know this, but uh, I oftentimes I, I just change up my schedule. But uh, I've really been enjoying Thursday afternoons here at the church. No one is here, and if you're ever going to bother me, don't do it on a Thursday afternoon. Just it's off limits. Yeah, if you come in on Thursday, I will lock the door and tell you to go away. In Jesus' name, because I'll set off the alarm. I'll, I'll call the cops. She's not supposed to be here. But this Thursday prayer time that I have on Thursday afternoons has become really, really special to me. This last Thursday, I uh, spent some time in here praying, and I prayed for our whole church by name, went through the whole, the whole roster of our church, and just prayed, prayed for God to be real to everyone, prayed for God to reveal himself in new and exciting ways to everyone, for God to, to deal with some of the pains that I know some people are struggling with, and just prayed for everyone, just spent some time praying through. But I also spend a fair amount of time just listening, listening to God and what it is he's wanting to tell us. And for years, some of my prayer has been uh, that, that God would really wake us up. That, that, we wouldn't, that we wouldn't just kind of go through life on autopilot and, and that we would just really be awakened to God's power and majesty and all that God has. And I've just been praying, and I just spend many of those afternoons just praying, God, wake us up. Wake us up to what you're doing. Wake us up to the war that we're in. Wake us up to, to the battle that, that you're fighting on our behalf. Wake us up to the mission that you've called us to. And just I would just pray that to just to really be awoken to what God has for us. But this week as I was praying, it was, it was a little bit different as God was leading me to pray that, that, that this church doesn't need to be made alive. This church is already alive. And I needed to change my prayer a little bit. I needed to change my perspective a little bit. That from, from hoping that God would really bring a new life to our church to just looking at the life that is here and part of the message that i felt god wanted me to to affirm in all of us this morning is that life is in this place and and when you know for me mornings like this can often be challenging they can be discouraging when a bunch of people are gone or sick it can be hard for me not to get discouraged because so much of how we do church hinges on a Sunday morning, and we're trying to change that, but we're still susceptible to that, and so a lot of times it can feel, it can feel like when people don't show up that there's something wrong, and I wrestle with that, just being honest with you, just telling you some of what I struggle with, and as your pastor, not a perfect, I'm not perfect, I, there are a lot of things that I still wrestle with, and doubt definitely can creep in there. But on a Sunday morning like this, when about half our people are gone, you know, for illness or whatever is going on, it, it, can, be, it can be hard to step out and say, you know what, this place is alive. <laughs> you know, and it feels like if I make a bold statement like that where I say, you know, there's life in this place. There, there's God's eternal life in here that, that everyone here is going to be sitting here thinking, is, is he, does he see what's happening? Does he see that there are a bunch of people not here this morning? Maybe he's just out of touch with reality. But, but see, that, 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 that's not really how God works. You know, when God is working, when God shows something, just like here we see with the disciples, when God gives a little bit of a picture, it may not be for right now, but, but we know that the day is coming when this will be fulfilled, when this will be the true reality of who Jesus was. And so I think... Some of what we need to start understanding is that God is building up a church here 
through us. And, and it's a church of, of diehard, sold-out, soul-committed disciples of Jesus Christ who are willing to deny themselves every single day, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. It's the real kind of authentic Christianity that the world so desperately needs, and that real life is actually stirring up in this place, and that what God is doing is bringing up the life that he actually intends for his church, and that he's going to use us as a catalyst to help pave the way for true, life-giving Christianity in our community and through connections to other churches in our community, and that God is actually doing an amazing work of stirring up life through our church, that there is actually life in this place, and it's the only life we really want because it's Jesus' life, not a fabrication of life. Well, this next one's a little bit challenging, but I believe this, that God wants to fill this place with people who are near to us but far from him. And he wants to use us to do it. He wants us to join him in his mission of building his kingdom. We talk about being a small church and there's absolutely nothing about nothing wrong about being a small church. We are not chasing a dream of being a mega church. We're not trying to be corporate church or any of those kinds of things. We're trying to be authentic, Christ-centered disciples. But an authentic, Christ-centered disciple is not okay with not bringing in new people to the kingdom. Someone who's following Jesus Christ cannot say, I am following him no matter what the cost, and not at the same time be willing to build relationships and reach out to non-believers who don't know him and invite them into the kingdom so that they might experience life. It's the same coin. It's two sides of the same coin. And I think for some of us, it might be time for us to get ready to move. We absolutely must be about the business of building up his kingdom. We absolutely must be about the business of going into dark places and reaching people who are lost and who are in bondage and who are still waiting to learn about the Savior that can set them free, that can bring them out, that can bring their exodus about out of the slavery that they're experiencing, that, that we absolutely must be a people who participate with God in his work, and that, and that no matter how much the cost, no matter how unpopular it gets, no matter how difficult it gets, we are going to people that go out and, and bring people into the kingdom through the love of God. I think it's time for us to get ready to move. I think it's time for us to get ready to really listen to Jesus and like Jesus has said, it's not just listening and agreeing, it's listening and doing, to listen and obey. So my last question is, are we going to keep propping up the tent of old experiences with God, or are we going to let God lead us to new mountaintop experiences as he leads us on his mission of building his kingdom? I do think God wants us to experience his presence in amazing and magnificent ways. But I think he wants to use that to propel us forward. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 through 21 says, For Christ's love compels us. This is Paul talking. He says, Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That's what Christ's love compels us to. Christ's love compels us to the fact that Jesus died, and he died for all, and that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And then Paul says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Why do we do that? Why do we let ourselves get, get trapped into this worldly way of thinking about everything? Why, do we, or why are we so concerned about 
the way the world sees everything. Why can't we see it from God's perspective and his point of view and how he looks at all the people around us? We, we don't look at the people around us from the worldly point of view. We look at them from God's point of view and that he created them in his image and he wants to redeem them and rescue them and restore them and bring them out of the bondage that they're in and set them free. Why can't we look at people from God's point of view? That's how Paul is talking. We don't, we don't regard anyone from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, just like the disciples did, they were looking at Christ from their worldly point of view. He says, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, us, the ministry of reconciliation. So because we don't look at anyone from a worldly point of view, we see that our, our role is to actually bring about reconciliation, reconciling people to God, that God, verse 19, was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us, you and me, his followers, his disciples, he has committed, he has entrusted, he has put it in our hands, the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are Christ's ambassadors, and therefore, as his ambassadors, Christ himself, God himself, is making his appeal through us. Through you, through me, through, through the lives that we lead, God wants to make his appeal, his appeal to be reconciled to God, to, to go out into the places where people are lost and dying and say, be reconciled. This angst that you feel, this struggle, this turmoil that you feel, this pain that you're experiencing because you're rebelling against God and, and you're looking at everything from your worldly point of view, if you could just, if you could just see a little bit differently, like, like God created you to see, you would see that he wants you to be reconciled to him and, and then Christ's love will compel us and them to go and bring people into the kingdom. Is Christ's love compelling us? Is Christ's love pushing us forward as Christ loved the engine that's driving everything about how we live our lives, or are we afraid of it? We want to camp out in the good feeling and not trust that God is preparing us for something greater. Over the next few weeks as we move towards Easter, we actually have a church plant that's going to be with us on March 31st. They're planting a church over on the on 4th Plain, and they're going to bring their 20 or so people and, and participate with us on March 31st. And on that Sunday, we're going to get what a, a glimpse of what it would look like if we had 20 more people in our church. We're going to get to pray for them as God builds the kingdom. We're going to bring them all together and pray for them and pray for their pastor. His name is Ryan. You can start praying for him now. They're launching on Easter in about 57 days. And we're going to have them here. We're going to get to experience what it might look like to have those with us. But then as we lead up to Easter, we're going to start filling this place with chairs. I haven't told Jim this, and it's going to affect him the most. But we're going to have a lot of empty seats. But we want to do that to, to give us this picture that the potential of what God has for us as his church in building his kingdom is still ahead of us. That, that looking ahead, the potential of what God wants to do and bringing people into this church, I don't think we've even really grasped a little microscopic view of what God wants to do to build his kingdom through us. And I believe now more than ever that God is going about a great work through us, his people here, and that, that as we start looking forward into the future of what God is leading us towards, that we are going to just be amazed at what God is doing and what God has done. And I wouldn't even be surprised if, if a year from now we look back at this time that we've spent together as a church this past year and how God has brought us together and knit us together and, and, and empowered us through the Spirit to, to minister and to 
encourage one another and equip one another and empower one another for this, this role of being his body that we look back on this time from a year from now that we would look back and just be amazed that, you know what, once we just kind of opened our eyes to what God wanted to do, it's really been amazing. I'm just praying for us to get that burden. I've heard pastors talk about that, you know, you hear, you hear somebody give a message and it doesn't really have much of a passion behind it, doesn't have a heart behind it. Charles Stanley would talk about it. He says he, a man doesn't have a burden. I've got a burden had a burden for the whole time that I've been here for even before that, that, that we would be used mightily by God to bring people out of the darkness and into the light. And I'm going to confess to you, I've prayed for God to give you that same burden. So if you feel that burden, that might be my fault. But I've been praying that God would just put a weight on us just just load us down with this burden of we got to reach somebody we we got to reach somebody there's there's somebody that's dying we we I got to reach somebody. God, would you use me? God, would you put someone on my path this week that I, can, that I can share you with? Would you put someone in my path this week that I can invite into the church? Would you put someone in my path that I can love? Someone in my path that I can, that I can show kindness to? Someone in my path that I, can, that I can just have the opportunity to represent you? Just someone that I can show your love to? God, would you give us that opportunity? And if we all prayed for this opportunity, if we all were willing to die to everything, to deny ourselves, disown ourselves, die to it all, die to our own ideas, just, just die to it all, and say, I'm ready. I'll go where you want me to go. Do what you want me to do. Whatever you have for me, let's go. Wouldn't that be amazing if all of us just embraced that Let's stand together. As the worship team comes, I ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Is there somebody in your life right now that God's already put in your life that he wants you to reach for his kingdom? Who is it? Pray for them right now can pray this prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask that you send your spirit ahead of me to open the eyes of their mind, open the eyes of their heart, that they might receive you, receive your truth, be receptive to you. Father, I ask that you use me to be an instrument of the gospel, that I might love them, that I might show mercy to them, kindness to them, that I might be you to them, and they might come to know you as a result of being connected to me. You have chosen to work through me. This is how you have chosen to work. You've committed to us this responsibility. You've entrusted it to us. Father, help us to be faithful stewards with what you've given us to do. Father, if we're sitting in camp, just waiting for the invitation. I pray that you would give us the courage to step out of our tent today, take it down, and follow you down off the mountain. If we are today wrestling with the truth that you want us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you, that, that you just all you want for me is to ruin my life, if we're wrestling with that, Father, I pray that you'd help us to just embrace your truth and see what you do with it. 
But Father, I pray for every single one of us in this room and every single one who's watching online as they're homesick, everyone who might listen to this at some point down the road. I pray for every single person that calls 6A Church home, every single person that is connected to this church. I pray, Father, that you put a burden on our hearts for the lost. You put a burden on our hearts for those who are, are in bondage to sin and, and that as you have set us free through the power of the cross, as you have set us free through, through the power of the resurrection, that you would give us this desire to go and be their Moses and lead them out of their bondage. Father, if we've settled for something you didn't want us to settle for, I pray that you would forgive us and open our eyes to see this new and living way that you're calling us into. And we ask, Father, for just one more. Will you use us to reach just one more? just one more who's lost. Father, help us to reach one more who's perishing, one more who's suffering, one more who's struggling. Father, help us to reach just one more. In Jesus' name, amen.